This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to BigHeadsMedia.com for more great podcasts. Hello, gentle listeners. We wanted to... Hold on. Something's wrong. Yeah, that's better. Hey, and welcome to this episode of the Dear World Love History Podcast. Where the history is wacky and so are we. You're hanging out with the outlandish historians, Adrian And Renee. So sit back, relax, maybe take some notes. She's kidding. And enjoy this crazy time travel thing we do. Hey guys, and welcome to this episode of the Dear World Love History Podcast. We are back from our hiatus and roaring to go. Although we are a little late, and all we can say is we're sorry. Really, truly sorry. Yeah, Adrian had the flu the weekend we were supposed to record, you know, the one right before February 1st. Since she was coughing every time she laughed or talked or breathed or moved, we kind of had to put it off. So here we finally are. Yeah, it was fun times, guys. Fun times. And uh, I'm still, like two weeks later, still kind of sick. Like the cough is not going away. It's super fun. But now we are diving headfirst into the Salem Witch Trials and everything that goes with it. The who, the why, the what the fuck happened. We're covering it all. And this one is going to be a three-part miniseries. All right, this episode features promos from History of the Atlantic World and the Psyched Podcast, which are at the end of the episode. And if you're enjoying the podcast and the topics we cover, please rate and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen. And if there's anything you want us to cover, just let us know. You can always email us at hello at dearworldlovehistory.com or follow us on Twitter at Dear Historians or Instagram and or Facebook at Outlandish Historians. And now, it's time to head on back to Salem Village, Massachusetts Bay Colony, 1692. So let's set the scene. We're talking witch hunts, people. Before Salem Village, witch hunts were a thing that had been happening in Europe for centuries. Salem doesn't even take the cake for the worst witch hunt in history, but for some reason, it is one- well, there is a reason. It was one of the blackest marks in American history. What a way to start things off. Right. Unlike the Salem Trials, the witch hunts of Europe, Scotland, and England ended with thousands dead. The worst of the worst definitely took place in Europe. Between 1400 and 1775, about 50,000 people lost their lives. Twice that number were accused and put on trial. Between 1645 and 1647, that's two years, over 100 people were killed after they were declared witches in East Anglia and England. That was out of 250 who were accused. In 1626, about 2,000 people died as a result of a 10-year-long witch hunt in the German electorate of Colonia. Between 1710 and 1750, 800-ish people were killed in Hungary. In comparison, 25 people died as a result of the Salem Witch Trials, which lasted over one year. Not a lot of deaths in the grand scheme of things, right? Now, in terms of numbers, it's almost nothing, obviously, compared to the number of deaths in Europe and Britain. So what makes Salem one of the most revisited witch hunts in history? Why do we keep talking about it and studying it, this one singular event? Because it's so singular, because it's so small. Thousands of people, we look at them as numbers. We shouldn't, but unfortunately we do. Now, some of those names we just don't have, but 25 people, we can get to know them. Their history, who they were as people, how they lived, their community, and the whole left behind by their loss, how it affected their loved ones, and how it shaped a population and the area they lived in. 
This is the story of Salem Village and its surrounding towns, its inhabitants, and most importantly, the story of the innocent people who were cried out on and accused of being witches, some of whom paid the ultimate price. The population of Salem Village, of quite a bit of Massachusetts really, were Puritans, a sect of Protestantism that thought Henry VIII's Reformation wasn't Reformation-y enough. For them, Anglicanism still looked kind of like Catholicism, which meant that they weren't fans of either. Still too much nonsense for their taste. Puritanism smelled more like Calvinism, another sect of Protestantism. So the Puritans started making their way over to the New World, in part because they had to. King James was not a fan of theirs, so preachers weren't allowed to step outside the bounds of Anglican sermons. And King Charles I hated them even more than James did. And that was James I of England slash 6th of Scotland, FYI. Who is the son of Mary, Queen of Scots. Yeah. It's super fun. Yeah. You know, that two-part thing we did on Mary Queen of Scots. Anyway, moving on. All right, so the Great Migration, what it's called, began, with John Winthrop taking the reins. So long, England, time for something new. Unlike other settlers looking for a brand new lease on life, the Puritans had a doom and gloom outlook on the world. In their minds, there weren't really any gray areas. An individual was either good or evil. Like Calvinism, they believed in the idea of predestination— Every single person ever conceived had their destiny mapped out for them before they were even born. And not the you-will-do-great-things sort of destiny, or you're destined to be a chimney-sweep destiny. Nah. For them, destiny was all about where they went when they died. Heaven or hell. No matter what people did or how amazing a life they lived, it wouldn't change that fact. But... It didn't mean that they could run wild and be footloose and fancy-free. People still had to live their lives according to the Bible, even if fiery damnation was their end reward. The lucky few who were destined for heaven would just naturally live excellent Christian lives. It was a Puritan's duty, in fact, to read the Bible and adhere to its teachings, and attend sermons. Anything and everything that happened in the world was because God was either happy with the Puritans or pissed off at their antics. Things were going well, God was happy. Cattle died, God was pissed. As for the colony itself, the colony charter was given to Massachusetts in 1629. They then lost it in 1684 because the colony and King Charles II did not get along. So things were a little tense between the Massachusetts Bay Colony and the mother country because the charter basically allowed the colony to have their own way to govern themselves, to operate without Britain standing over their shoulder, watching every single move. Since there were so many Puritans, the main religion of Massachusetts was naturally Puritanism. Everyone who lived in the colony had to show up at Puritan sermons, and the community had to pay for the minister. Didn't matter if they were Puritans or not. Super tolerant place to live, right? Not really, right? But Puritans weren't all doom and gloom, we'll give them that. Sometimes they even had a party. They didn't always wear the Hollywood version of Puritan clothing, and by that I mean it wasn't always Fifty Shades of Black and Gray. They wore more than black as in actual colors, and though it may sound like it, they weren't constantly making disapproving frowny faces at everything. They actually laughed at things, told jokes even, within reason of course, and drank some form of alcohol when they ate. Going to the tavern was okay, getting drunk wasn't. It was an everything in moderation kind of thing. Sex with someone you're not married to? (laughs) Really bad, fucking forget about it. Don't even think about it, okay? Sex with your spouse? Sex it up, friends. Got approved? Just don't do it in public. They didn't celebrate the typical Christian holidays people today love and are familiar with, like Christmas, but they loved themselves a good harvest. Those party animals. And their love of the fire things in life came out in their household furnishings. 
Some of the things we read made us picture these strange, haphazard, antique shop-looking homes. They loved fancy woods, vibrant colors others might avoid, and chair seats that looked like they were stolen from a Turkish sultan. So Puritan life may not have been all fun and games, but at least it wasn't the drabest existence known to mankind. Now, it's time to talk all things Salem. Yeah, buddy, we're finally there. But a bit of background first. So Salem was actually a pretty big chunk of land way back when. It used to cover what is now Peabody, Danvers, Marblehead, Middleton, Beverly, Manchester, Wenham, Topsfield, Swampscott, and the city of Salem. This area was made up of a combination of farms and a centralized village with a meeting house in the middle of it all. Now, these villages meant people could go about their daily lives while still living in a community close to a place of worship, and a village was much easier to defend than the open countryside, so big plus there. But then in the 1650s and 1660s, Salem started making more money off of trade than farming, so the farms were sold to dudes who actually, you know, wanted to be farmers. The residents of the farming area, known as Salem Village, were beholden to Salem Town's whims and its meeting house. Alright, so Salem Village wanted to be its own independent town. Salem Town, on the other hand, said, no. Can we have our own minister? No. Can we have our own meeting house? No. So back and forth they went until Salem Town finally gave them the green light for both in 1672. But wait, that didn't mean they had autonomy from Salem Town. Salem Town still held all the power. Salem Village went through quite a few ministers before Samuel Paris came on the scene. Paris was the guy preaching from the pulpit during the Salem Witch Trials. We'll get to him in a little bit. The first minister the village hired was James Bailey. He lasted from 1673 until 1680 when Nathaniel Putnam and his friends got their way, as usual, and forced him to hit the road. The Reverend George Burroughs came on the scene in 1680. He had graduated from Harvard in 1670. Before Salem Village, Burroughs was keeping the faith alive in Falmouth, Maine, until 1676, when King Philip's War chased everybody out. Now, King Philip's War was a series of battles fought between the Native Americans of the New England area and the New England colonists and their Native American allies. It lasted from 1675 to 1678. Luckily for Burroughs, the people of Salem Village wanted to build a parsonage for him, for him to live in. But then, about a year later, Burroughs also got out of Dodge after the village committee, the dudes in charge of running things, decided they didn't feel like paying him anymore. So he did the only thing he could. No payment, no minister, done. But then he came back on May 3rd, 1683, to get all his accounts in order. And another Putnam, this time one Captain John Putnam, threw a temper tantrum. Arrest that man! He owes me money! Johnny boy got his way. Poor Reverend Burroughs was arrested, but things were settled out of court. And off he went again, back to Falmouth, Maine. Remember this guy. He's important later on. Then came Deodat Lawson in February 1684. This guy had attended Cambridge in his native England before heading to New England in the 1670s. And by 1688-ish, Lawson was also gone, after an interesting game of -of tug-of-war between two factions of Salem Village. One wanted the village to have a church and Lawson to be fully ordained. The other did not. Now, Salem Town told both sides to pipe the fuck down. And finally, we have the Reverend Samuel Paris, minister number four, rolling into Salem Village in 1689. Another Harvard graduate, he didn't make it easy on the village. He came with strings. They offered him a salary of 60 pounds a year without any raises, same as Lawson received. Paris eventually accepted, but with conditions. He can eventually get a raise once the village starts to make more money, gets free firewood, and he gets to pick the food he was given. Plus, the Putnams and their allies voted to just hand over ownership of the parsonage to Paris in October 1689. 
Almost a year later, he became the proud owner of said parsonage. In addition to this, Salem Town said Paris could be an ordained minister, the first of his kind in Salem Village. Paris became all official on November 16, 1689. In his first sermon as an ordained minister, he delivered a wham-bam-thank-you-ma'am kind of sermon. If they repented and lived like good little Puritans, he'd forgive them. He was going to be both an example of Puritan awesomeness and sit on high in judgment of them, make sure everything and everyone was in tip-top shape. More than that, he wanted them to love him, listen to him, pray on his behalf, and make his job as easy as possible. And they had to knock their shit off and stop their bickering and pissing matches. He didn't like it, and it was making his life fucking difficult and annoying. How dare they? And here's where the meet and greet starts for some of the main players of the Salem Witch Trials. When Paris came to the village, he didn't come alone. His wife, three kids, his niece, and their two Caribbean slaves, a couple by the name of John Indian and Tituba, came with him. Paris's nine-year-old daughter, Betty, and Abigail Williams, the 11-year-old niece, were front and center when the accusations began. They both spent a lot of time with Tituba. Betty also had a 10-year-old brother and a 5-year-old sister, so they had kids their own age around them, but her siblings are rarely mentioned during the trials. From what we've read, they don't have much to do with them at all, honestly. And why was Abigail living with her aunt and uncle? Poor kid may have been an orphan, so her family took her in. And this is where it all began. In January 1692, in the parsonage Samuel Paris and his family lived in. This is the moment when Betty and Abigail became afflicted, a.k.a. started acting weird and shit. They were talking nonsense and crawling under chairs. What was wrong with these girls? Were they sick? Was it demons? This went on for weeks before Reverend John Hale came over from Beverly to take a look. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep, it's bad. They're being pinched and poked and contorted by something no one else can see. Bad news bears all around. The girls' fits went on, became more violent and contortionisty. Sometimes they were vomiting words nonstop. Other times they were sitting around staring off into space. By the end of February, Paris had a light bulb moment. What if it's... Witches. (gasps) The gasp. Mary Sibley came up with the harebrained idea of a witch cake, which was then fed to the dog, and in some strange, magical way, the dog would somehow unveil who was doing these evil things to Abigail and Betty. Was he supposed to just blurt it out, write it down? And get this, the secret ingredient in this rye bread loaf, Betty and Abigail's pee. Yes, you heard that right. Pee. That poor fucking dog. Mary Sibley got a very, very public verbal smack for her efforts from Paris. Magic was magic, didn't matter if it was being used for good or for bad. The devil was behind it all. And, but I mean, the witch cake wasn't really needed anyway. Eventually, Betty and Abigail named Tichuba as their witchy torturer. Poor Tichuba was the first to be accused of witchcraft. The first who apparently had nothing better to do than torment little Puritan girls with her spirit. Did she bake the witch cake? Sure. Was she a witch? Tichuba said no. At this point, it was only Abigail and Betty who were having strange fits. At first. Next up on the docket were Anne Putnam, daughter of Thomas Putnam and Anne Carr Putnam. She was 12 and lived about a mile away. There was also Elizabeth Hubbard, a 17-year-old who lived with her aunt and uncle, Mary and Dr. William Griggs, right outside of Salem Village. Elizabeth was actually employed by her aunt as a maid. Anne and Elizabeth were also being tortured by witches. It was slowly becoming an epidemic. According to Anne, Sarah Good suddenly decided she needed to pinch her and convert her to Satanism. As for Elizabeth, Sarah Good may have had her eye on Elizabeth, but it was Sarah Osborne who decided Elizabeth was the perfect victim. 
Next, Mary Walcott and Mercy Lewis joined in the fun. What's a party without screaming writhing minors? They, along with Anne Putnam and Elizabeth Hubbard, claimed to have gone blind and deaf. It's a shame they didn't also go mute. But that would have been way too convenient. So what were they screaming about? Tichaba, of course. The woman was causing the girls pain. Tichaba staunchly denied this. Who? Her? Not a chance. She was completely innocent. She refused to confess, even when she was beaten. Unfortunately, everyone has their breaking point. So yeah, she admitted it. She was a witch. But wait, that, that wasn't enough for Paris. There had to be other witches, so obviously he wanted Tichaba to give them up. This time, though, Tichaba stayed mum. But that didn't hinder things for a second. Sarah Good and Sarah Osborne already fit the bill. They fell under the umbrella of the stereotypical idea of a witch. Basically, they weren't demure and submissive to the menfolk. They weren't young spring chickens. They said whatever they wanted to say and weren't about to win any popularity contests. Let's officially meet Sarah Good. After her father committed suicide and her mother married a man who made sure Sarah never saw a penny of the money left to her, she ended up married to a lazy bum and eventually ended up with a bunch of kids she couldn't feed. The only way she could was by relying on the kindness of others. But the problem was, Sarah didn't do kindness, okay? She was super rude about the whole thing. There she was, literally begging for food, and when people said no, she might as well have given them the middle finger. Then there was Sarah Osborne. She had scandal written all over her. She was, once upon a time, married to a guy who was super well off, owned lots of farmland. But when he died, she bought herself an indentured servant by the name of Alexander Osborne and then married the dude a bit later. So is that scandalous? Eh, not so much. Until you take into account that pretty much everyone believed they were having sex before they got married. Big no-no. As in, <laughs> sexy time before the vows, 15 lashes each sort of no-no. This is where the dominoes really start to fall. Jonathan Corwin and John Hathorne, the local magistrates, showed up on February 29th to start examinations on the three already accused witches, Tichuba, Good, and Osborne. Corwin and Hathorne weren't really lawyers. They were rich men who usually only had to deal with small crimes. Witches were definitely a first for them. They grabbed the bull by the horns, as they say, and decided to get shit done. The first thing they did when they arrived was issue arrest warrants for Tichuba, Good, and Osborne. Examinations would begin the very next day, March 1st, at 10 a.m., at Ingersoll's Ordinary, a local tavern. When the time finally came for the examinations to start, everyone had to be moved to a larger location since way too many people were showing up to watch how things unfolded. Honestly, when you think about it, in a society where Paris is shoving strict piety down everyone's throat, this was probably the most excitement they'd seen in a long time. So a huge turnout shouldn't have come as a surprise. Disgusting? Yes. Surprising? Probably not. Not to mention the fact that human beings were notorious for showing up to watch the suffering of others over the centuries, be it trials or executions. Once everyone was settled, Sarah Good was the first of the accused to take the stand. Lucky her. As we mentioned previously, the magistrates in charge were John Hathorne and Jonathan Corwin. When it came to the questioning, Hathorne took the reins and went full speed ahead. So instead he wins the race? Nah. As Good stood there answering their questions, there was only one way the examination was going to end. You know the saying, innocent until proven guilty, right? Well, this situation was more like guilty until we can really prove you're guilty. Not fair <laughs> at all, but there it is. It didn't matter how many times Sarah Good said she wasn't a witch, wasn't working with the devil, or torturing the kids. 
Hathorne continued beating her over the head with question after question, trying to get her to confess. It wasn't until Anne Putnam Jr., Elizabeth Hubbard, Abigail Williams, and Betty Paris had conveniently timed fits that everything went to shit. The magistrates had confirmation. Sarah Good was definitely one of the witches. Sarah was still very much on the no train. She was definitely not a witch. The more Good said no, the louder the girls got. Unfortunately, Good eventually named Sarah Osborne as the witch causing all the ruckus. It took some prying on Hathorne's part, but he did get it out of her. Naming others would eventually become the norm for these trials. When Good left the stand, Hathorne questioned her husband, William Good. His testimony was super weird. One moment, he was crying, saying his wife couldn't possibly be a witch, even though she wasn't necessarily the kindest and most patient person. But then he turned around and said she was evil. And that was all. Nothing else was really needed. Good would stay in custody until an official trial was held. That's right, guys. This wasn't even the actual trial. These were only the examinations meant to determine if someone would stand trial. But let's be honest. It was the trial before the trial. Sarah Osborne was the next to be questioned. The questions Hathorne asked were pretty much the same. Why did you do this thing? I didn't. When did you start doing this thing? I'm not doing anything. Confess your guilt. But I'm not guilty! And so on. Until Hathorne mentioned that Good threw Osborne under the bus. Even then, Osborne got cheeky. How was she supposed to know what the devil was up to when he was walking around wearing her face? Too bad for Osborne, the girl stood up and pretty much said, Yep, that's the one. It's her. She did it. She's a witch. Cue the screaming and flailing. Osborne, instead of naming someone else as the witch, claimed she was likely the victim of witchcraft rather than the one practicing it. After all, this one time, an Indian appeared in one of her dreams and pinched her. Just the one time, though. But then there was the issue of her hearing voices, and just like in the wizarding world, hearing voices was bad news bears. This voice told her to stop going to services, but Osborne refused to listen. Of course she was going to go to services. However, according to Paris... Osborne hadn't been to a sermon in ages because she was sick. And by ages, we mean a little over a year. All this added up to her guilt. Boom. Osborne, like good, would be held for trial. The final woman to be brought in was Tichuba, the first to be accused. Unlike with Sarah Good and Sarah Osborne, who didn't cause the girls to flip a shit when they first got there, it was completely different this time. As soon as Tichuba entered the meeting house, stepped a toe in, all right, the girls started freaking the fuck out. Being in the same room was more than enough to let the madness begin. Tichuba's examination didn't follow the same pattern as Good or Osborne's. Who oh, no, no, not even a little bit. Why? Because she eventually flat-out confessed that a man-shaped, like, person thing came to her and she agreed to do whatever he told her to do. Did that include outing the other witches in the area? Eh. Who knows? You'd think that wouldn't be part of Satan's plan, but that's what she did. She confessed that not only herself, but Good, Osborne, and three others from Boston were the ones behind Anne, Elizabeth, Betty, and Abigail's torments. She didn't want to hurt the girls, but the devil made her do it. I mean, honestly. She gave in to him. What else was she supposed to do? But she was really, really sorry about everything. What's interesting to note is that while the girls were still convulsing while Tichuba denied her guilt, they stopped as soon as Tichuba confessed. But that didn't last long. As soon as Tichuba mentioned Good or Osborne, the girls started up all over again. Tichuba had stopped hurting them, but, according to her, Sarah Good hadn't. The only reason Tichuba hadn't told everyone what was happening was because Good and Osborne stopped her. They used their magic to bind her, apparently. They forced Tichuba to fly with them on a broom 
to Anne Putnam so they could torture her. It was all very Sabrina the Teenage Witch. You know, if Sabrina was a sadist. So Tichaba's examination was spread out over a couple of days. During this time, she continued to provide a shit ton of evidence for the magistrates and the people of Salem to chew on. On March 2nd, she coughed up some dirt on the devil's book. She signed it in blood, but so had Good and Osborne. And so did seven other witches. Who would have thought so many witches lived in Salem? What's worse, these witches were gathering right under the nose of Paris, who was none the wiser. It was a nightmare. Tichiba had just announced to all and sundry that there were nine witches on the loose. Everywhere people looked, there was a witch. It didn't take long for things to spiral out of control. In fact, it had already started on March 1st. After the examinations were done for the day, there was an itsy-bitsy something-something going on with Elizabeth Hubbard. While Samuel Sibley was visiting Dr. Griggs and Miss Elizabeth, Elizabeth started screaming out of fucking nowhere. Sarah Goodspirit was there, practically in her birthday suit. Sibley used his walking stick to give the table a good whack, and the spirit disappeared. Her hero. The following morning, Sarah Good had a bloody arm. Spectres, you see, weren't their own thing. They were always connected to the body they came from. When they injured the spirit, it would show up on the physical body. So everyone took this as proof that Good's spirit was at Elizabeth's house. But the problem was that Elizabeth Hubbard said Good was swacked in the back. So why was Good's arm bleeding? Eh, trivial thought, one people didn't even think about. It poked holes in their witch hunt, and that just wouldn't do. Best to move on. Anne Putnam didn't tell this story until a bit later, but she said that on March 3rd, Elizabeth Proctor's spirit took time out of her possibly busy schedule and attacked Anne. But Proctor wasn't alone. There were three other witches with her. It wasn't until March 6th that Anne made the connection between the spirit she saw and the living, breathing form of Goody Proctor in the meeting house. Anne had never met her before. Elizabeth Proctor was married to John Proctor, the farmer who made a pretty good living as a farmer and business owner. The couple didn't even live in Salem Village. They lived on the outskirts of Salem Town. All right. The examinations ended on March 5th, but Good, Osborne, and Tichuba weren't transferred to Boston Jail until March 7th. They were the first to be held for trial, but they sure as hell wouldn't be the last. Samuel Paris and his wife moved their daughter Betty to Salem Town to live with Stephen Sewell. They were worried because she was young. What if this whole witch fiasco put her health in danger? Best not to tempt fate, so away she went. Once Betty was removed from the toxic bullshit in Salem Village, her affliction came to an end. The symptoms didn't disappear immediately, but they did subside over time. Eventually, she told the Reverend John Hale that everything started with some fortune-telling, something the girls weren't allowed to do. Boom! Conscience clear. She was cured. A miracle! Now, while Betty was free and clear of the whole ordeal, that didn't mean things came to an end in Salem. Anne Putnam Jr. named two more witches. One was Dorothy Good, the four-year-old daughter of Sarah Good. Yes, the very same woman who had just been sent to Boston jail. And the other was Martha Corey. And yes, you heard me right. Four-year-old Dorothy Good. As was already becoming a disgusting habit, Anne claimed Dorothy Spector attacked her. There was biting and pinching involved, all in an effort to get Anne to sign the devil's book. Yes, a four-year-old was doing all of these things. There was no minimum age requirement to join the dark side, but, you know, if the dark side had cookies. Also, Dorothy was also known as Dorcas Good, as an FYI. Now, as for the 65-year-old Martha, she was a relatively new member to the church, only having joined in 1690. Her husband was Giles Corey. 
He was well off, but not necessarily well liked. So Edward Putnam, the paternal uncle of Ann Putnam Jr., had a visit with Martha. He, along with court reporter Ezekiel Cheever, showed up on Martha's doorstep on March 12th. Martha knew exactly why they showed up at her house, but she wasn't a witch, so that was all there was to it. She was really rather practical about the whole thing. She couldn't control if people were talking about her or what they were saying. She was a member of the church and couldn't be a witch as a result. She loved God. End of story. Unfortunately for her, that didn't actually disqualify her from the witch hunt. The devil and his witch minions could be anywhere and everywhere in the community. Martha basically hinted at the idea that the devil was the guy behind it all, not witches. On March 14th, Martha went over to the Putnams to see Anne. Anne and Mercy Lewis, the Putnam's servants, started freaking out. Fits all around. A few days later, the other Anne Putnam, a.k.a. Mother Dear, claimed Martha's spirit came to her and tried to kill her. According to her, she was terrified and almost died. Like daughter, like mother. On March 19th, an arrest warrant was issued for Martha Corey. Her accusers? Edward Putnam and his buddy Henry Kenny on behalf of Ann Putnam Sr., Ann Putnam Jr., Mercy Lewis, Abigail Williams, and Elizabeth Hubbard. The warrant didn't stop more accusations from coming in. Mary Warren, who worked for John and Elizabeth Proctor, revealed that she too was being hurt by Martha Corey. Honestly, what a busy fucking woman. Where on earth did she find the time to afflict so many? But Lucky Martha had a day's reprieve from being arrested since the warrant was issued on the Sabbath. She used the day to go to services. She should have ran so far away instead, but who could predict what the situation would turn into? Her attendance at the meeting house didn't go over well since some of the girls burst into fits just because Martha was sitting in the building. In addition to the usual suspects, Mrs. Pope and Goodwife Biber were also apparently being tormented. Abigail Williams claimed Martha was sitting on a pew with her familiar Namen on her witch's mark. On March 20th, her examination began. Hathorne asked her the same exact questions Good and Osborne were asked. Why did you do this? What did these people ever do to you? Confess your sins! All Martha wanted to do was pray. Hathorne wouldn't let her, so she was left with her only other option, repeatedly insisting that she was innocent and a God-fearing woman. And then she said a prayer anyway. Good for you, Martha. Not sure if she intended it that way, but that was the biggest fuck you to Hathorne and everyone watching events unfold. Even her husband, okay, this is just crazy to me, even her husband, Giles Corey, spoke against her. He couldn't pray properly whenever she was around. Their animals got sick, then they got better. He never outright said she was a witch, but come the fuck on. What else was everyone going to think after hearing from him? And again, Hathorne came at Martha. She swore up and down that she was innocent. No matter how many times Hathorne told her to confess, she wouldn't. While this was going on, the girls were, of course, in fine form, screaming in the background. Mrs. Pope even threw her muff at Martha, the thing that was supposed to keep her hands warm. And missed. Okay, then. Take two. She then threw her shoe at Martha, which smacked her in the head. Poor Martha Corey never stood a chance in front of those people. I mean, honestly. And Hathorne didn't stop it from happening. Mob mentality, man, okay? Since Martha refused to lie and say she was a witch, off to Salem Prison, she went. The next person accused was Rebecca Nurse, which should come as a shock to the village since she was considered the epitome, okay, of all that was good. Literally, this unassuming and pious old woman lived with her husband, Francis, on the Townsend Bishop farm. Yeah, she was like one of the most respected matrons in the entire village. So the fact that she was accused, it's like, seriously, everybody go home. 
According to Ann Putnam Jr., Rebecca Nurse's spirit started tormenting her when Martha Corey was safely locked away in prison. Rebecca tried to get Ann to sign her name in the Devil's Book. Ann refused. So Rebecca continued to torture her all day. Sounds like thirsty, thirsty work. Rebecca Nurse's examination was a riot. Literally, no matter what Rebecca did, the girls continued to scream and cry and wail in pain. Like Martha, she insisted she was innocent. But Hathorne asked the same questions he used on the others. Always why, and never, did you actually do these things? Rebecca reminded everyone that the week before, she was holed up at home sick as a dog. But that didn't matter since her spirit could be out and about doing evil things while she sat under a blanket in front of a fire or in her bed. And when Hathorne brought up Rebecca's spirit running amok in the village, all she had to say was that, quote, the devil may appear in my shape. And this quote is... Literally her own words, which we took from a, or rather borrowed, from A Delusion of Satan by Frances Hill. Now, the other person questioned that day was young Dorothy Good. The girls wouldn't stop screaming whenever Dorothy looked at them. This four-year-old was quite the little witch, biting them from across the room. Such talent. When an entire town turns on a toddler and locks her away based on the word of other children, you know something's truly rotten in Salem. And totally fucked. Now, it reminds me of the change in lyrics to the mob song from Beauty and the Beast by Alan Menken, the live-action version, when um, LeFou sings, there's a beast running wild, there's no question, but I fear the wrong monster's released. That's the situation we have here. My philosophy is, before you look for the witch without, maybe you should look for the witch within, assholes. Anyway, moving on. A few days later in Salem Prison, Dorothy confessed to Hathorne and Corwin that she had a snake that suckled from her finger. Aha! The witch's mark! Oh yeah, Ma gave me this little spectral snake to be my familiar, because these familiars, by the way, weren't actual tangible creatures that other people could see. Apparently, only the witches and the girls being afflicted by the witches could see their familiars. How convenient. Right? Now, what else do you get a small child, obviously, aside from a strange little minion of the devil? Like the others, Dorothy and Rebecca won themselves a trip to Salem Prison. Earlier, we mentioned that Elizabeth Proctor was one of the accused, but this is where it came to a head. Mary Warren, who worked for the Proctors, was one of the girls plagued by the witches, but John Proctor remedied that when he threatened to beat the affliction out of her. That was what he believed. A few well-laid smacks or good whipping would stop the accusations in their tracks. For all the girls. Boom. Instantaneous cure. However, that didn't stop others from pointing fingers at the Proctors. Mercy Lewis, who worked for the Putnams, accused Goody Proctor, but it wasn't until one week later that any complaints were filed against her and Sarah Cloyce, who's the sister of Rebecca Nurse. Visions of Elizabeth and Sarah continued to torment not only the girls, but also John Indian, Tichuba's husband, until April 11th when the examination for the two women began. Their examination was a little bit different, not in terms of questions, because those were absolutely definitely going to be the same but because Deputy Governor Thomas Danforth and some of his fancy assistants made a special appearance. Why? To make things more official. Instead of just the village people, and not the fun ones, heading it all up, here were actual people of power. And instead of taking place in Salem Village, this examination took place in Salem Town Meeting House. Danforth was asking the questions, and he made sure to stress what was done to the girls so all could hear just how much they suffered and how awful the witches were. When Sarah was identified as a witch... She passed the fuck out. This sent the girls into hysterics, some of them unable to speak. 
So it took a moment before they could confirm that Elizabeth Proctor was also a witch, up to all the usual witchy things. But the girls didn't stop there. In the same breath, they then threw John Proctor's name into the ring. From this moment on, the accusers went batshit crazy. Some fell over, some cried and screamed, Oh no, John Proctor was up to no witchy good. There's a wizard amongst us. So the following day, John Proctor joined the accused and was questioned alongside his wife and Sarah Cloyce. Apparently, his specter was sitting in the magistrate's lap. (gasps) How scandalous for a Puritan. At the end of it all, they were sent to Boston jail. And then Rebecca Nurse and Dorothy Good were transferred from Salem prison to Boston jail as well. On April 19th, four more people were brought in for questioning. Bridget Bishop, Giles Corey, the smarmy husband of Martha Corey, Abigail Hobbs, and Mary Warren. Yes, the very same Mary Warren, who at one point was also accusing people of witchcraft. Oh, how the tides turned so quickly. And so her examination went like this. Hathorne wanted to know how and why Warren switched sides. A valid question. So this was when it came out that John Proctor hadn't just threatened to beat Mary for accusing people, but he actually went through with it. It was then that Mary realized she'd made one big fucking oopsie by pointing her finger at people. When Mary was being questioned, the girls broke out into fits, and then Mary had fits too. There would be no more questioning her that day, so she was sent off to the prison. But Mary changed her tune the very next day. She confessed that the proctors were somehow able to con her into signing the devil's book. Those wily and cunning witches? But that wasn't enough. She accused others of being witches too. She did refuse to give up John Proctor's name, even when she was in prison, but she didn't seem to have any issue giving up Elizabeth. Dislike for her mistress or fear of her master playing a role there? Hmm. Now, on April 19th, Giles Corey was also examined. Was this karma at work? Who knows? Now, he was 80 years old and, like Martha, denied he was a witch wizard. They keep using, you know, the same witch to refer to the males as well. Um, Sometimes they also call them wizards, so we're going with witch wizard. Anyway, after Corey, 14-year-old Abigail Hobbs was up. She's an interesting little imp because she confessed, like straight out confessed. Why are you, are you a witch? Yes, I'm a witch. Okay, moving on. You know, kind of like the bad girl who's like, yeah, I did that. And? She had absolutely no qualms telling all and sundry that she took pleasure in disobeying her father and doing whatever the hell she felt like doing. The fact that she made a deal with the devil was practically a badge of honor. According to her, she was walking through the woods on a stroll, minding her own damn business when she met the devil. That's how it always happens, I think. This was in 1688, when she would have been 10. And this was in Maine. Abigail was not a native of Salem. While Abigail did confess, and we do mean she confessed to everything, like how she knew the devil wore her face and went out to torment the girls, she wanted to let people know that she also really wanted to be good. Right. Believable? Me thinks not. Abigail's examination came to a rather abrupt halt when, out of the blue, she couldn't hear a word, Hathorne said. Sarah Good and Sarah Osborne were responsible. Of course. Who else would have done that to Abigail? With Abigail absolutely useless, she was removed from the meeting house. Something super interesting to note is that during Abigail's confession, none of the girls were wailing or flailing or convulsing. All was quiet on the New England front. Then there was Bridget Bishop. She made a rather easy target, seeing as how she was accused of witchcraft once before. Although it ended with her declared an innocent, people had heard about it. She was known for it. So another accusation? Why the heck not? According to Richard Common and John Louder, Bridget had some pretty kinky nighttime activities. 
They testified that Bridget sat on their chest, kept them pinned down, and choked them. Apparently, they didn't appreciate her attentions. Eh, sounds like they doth protest too much to me. Quite the imagination on those two. Now, apparently, Bridget was also killing children and even killed her first husband with witchcraft. Bridget did not confess. She said she was innocent. Shock of the century, Bridget was sent off to join the rest of the accused in jail. Two days later, Anne Putnam Jr. came face to face with two specters. Seriously, what a popular kid. She's meeting all the witches. This time, it was Abigail Hobbs and a new player, Reverend George Burroughs. You heard that right. A reverend, but not just any reverend, the very reverend who once worked in Salem. Why did he appear with Abigail? Because both were from the Casco Bay area, obviously, so clearly they knew each other as witches. Now, George's spirit told Anne, quite gleefully, apparently, that he was a murderer. He offed his first two wives, but he didn't stop there. For whatever reason, he went after Deodat Lawson, killed the man's wife and kid. And all these years of getting away with these alleged crimes, now George's spirit decided it was time to shout it from the rooftops. Absolutely fascinating. What makes it even more fascinating is that George Burroughs was living in Maine, but he decided to pop over to Salem, you know, share all his witch news. George's examination was different, okay? And they did go all the way up to Maine to arrest him and bring him back to Salem. The magistrates didn't want any of the girls screaming and getting in the way of their questions. Not at first, anyway. So George was kept away from the crowd. No riffraff to interfere. During the initial questioning, he played right into their hands. Apparently, the good reverend hadn't taken part in the sacrament lately. Only his oldest kid was baptized. Crimes, apparently, in and of themselves in the Puritan faith. Now, my favorite question, dude, is your house haunted? Because apparently that means witchcraft is afoot. Now, he said, no, my house is not haunted, but there are toads on my property. Toads were considered the devil's minions. Things weren't looking good for good old George Burroughs. Time to throw him to the wolves. Couldn't sit in the back all day. The moment George entered the tavern, the girls went wild. More screaming. Okay? The people of Salem should have invested in earplugs. George was shocked. Who wouldn't be? The girls shouted that his dead wives, taking a break from their eternal nap, were in the meeting house and accusing him of murder. The girls couldn't read their testimonies without falling over in some sort of fit. Right? The power of George's gaze was that strong. It got to the point that the girls had to be taken out because they were causing too much of a ruckus. After that, witnesses came forward in droves. George Burroughs went to witch gatherings. He put a hex on one guy. He was incredibly strong, abnormally so, a regular Hercules. And he bullied his second wife. In the end, George Burroughs, a woman named Sarah Churchwell, and three women from Walburn were sent to jail to wait for the trials to begin. Things only got worse the next day. Not surprising, right? Sarah Osborne, one of the first women accused, who was also bedridden due to her shit health, died on May 10th after spending nine weeks in the disgusting excuse for a jail. It was no secret that Boston Jail was a shit show. Back in 1688, John Dunton described Boston Jail as, quote, the suburbs of hell, and that is per A Storm of Witchcraft by Emerson Baker. A super flattering description, right? The fact that Osborne lasted over two months, considering her health, was a miracle. She shouldn't have even been in there to begin with. 
Then, two days later, maybe because she spent too much time in that awful place, Mary Warren threw her hands up and basically said, All right, I'll tell you everything you want to know. Yes to everything. After keeping her lips shut to that point, she finally gave up John Proctor's name as one of the witches. And then she added some more to sweeten the load, as if ruining lives meant nothing to her. By the middle of May, thanks in part to Mary Warren, there were 36 people in total rotting in jail. The magistrate's wrists must have been killing them after writing all those warrants. Not that we care. Let's put this into perspective. 36 was the total by mid-May. Mary Warren started confessing on May 12th. So in a matter of days, the number of people in jail grew. But it wasn't all her doing. She did have some help. There were new accusers on the scene. One of them was 21-year-old Sarah Churchill. She worked for George Jacobs, an elderly fella over the age of 70. Sarah accused both George as well as his granddaughter, 16-year-old Margaret Jacobs. During George's examination on June 1st, he was quite direct. He didn't believe a lick of what the girls were saying, so get on with it already. He was innocent and there was nothing more to say. His exact words were amazing. Okay, per a storm of witchcraft, quote, Well, burn me or hang me. I will stand in the truth of Christ. I know nothing of it. Boom. Drop the mic. Margaret, on the other hand, confessed. When you're young and scared and a big scary magistrate tells you to confess or you're going to hang, what the hell would you do? Okay? Especially when the other option is admitting to being a witch and getting to live. She did what she had to do to live another day, though the cost was very high. She ended up accusing her grandfather as well as George Burroughs. We're all witches, but worry not. She had a change of heart later on and recanted the entire thing. Now, it does look like Sarah Churchill felt a bit guilty about the lies that she told regarding George and Margaret Jacobs. Little too late. She soon ran to Sarah Ingersoll, the daughter of the guy who owned Ingersoll's tavern. Sarah Churchill was hysterical, admitting that she had done something wrong. When Sarah Ingersoll testified, she said that Sarah Churchill claimed she never saw, touched, licked, breathed on, or thereby, never signed, the devil's book. The only reason she said she'd done so was because she was too scared to tell the truth. Really healthy environment these people were living in. In the middle of all the chaos, a woman by the name of Elizabeth Carey was accused. Or rather, she was about to be accused. People had been bandying her name about, but her husband, a la-di-da kind of gent, wanted to nip that shit in the butt. Nathaniel Carey and his wife made their way from Charlestown to Salem. Reverend John Hale, someone Nathaniel knew, went back on his word, okay? Nathaniel had trusted this man, and dude just didn't care. He originally told Nathaniel that his wife would have the chance to talk to Abigail Williams about her allegations. But then, when he needed to deliver, he said that it wasn't going to happen. Hale then took the couple to Ingersoll's Tavern, where shit hit the fan. While the couple was chatting it up with John Indian, who helped out from time to time, you know, when he wasn't all booked up being tormented by specters, the girls came through the door, freaking the fuck out. Somehow, during their convulsions, they pointed their fingers at Elizabeth Carey. She was the witch. A warrant was issued for Elizabeth's arrest. During the examination, when Nathaniel tried to speak in his wife's defense, he was told he had to shut up or they'd kick him out. The dirty, rotten scoundrel known as John Indian also came in as an accuser, and he behaved as though Elizabeth Carey was causing him pain. And so Elizabeth was sent to jail. But at least this story had a happy ending. In July, when the trials began, Nathaniel Carey planned his wife's escape, actually succeeded, and they disappeared to New York to the welcoming arms of the governor. John Alden 
a 70-year-old mariner from Boston and son of the co-founder of Plymouth Colony, and, you know, one of the Mayflower people, was accused of witchcraft on May 28th. His examination, like all the ones before him, was a complete joke. The girls cried, screamed, blah, blah, blah. And then John asked a very important and legitimate question. Why would he take the time out of his day to come to Salem and torture people he didn't even know? No one had an answer, so that was promptly ignored. Yeah, they really weren't fans of logic and reason. Bartholomew Gedney, the third magistrate working with Hathorne and Corwin, really wanted John to confess. Why should he when he was innocent? Irrelevant. John had a reputation as a good and honest man, but that reputation was now in tatters. What makes this even worse is that Gedney actually knew Alden. It was one of those I always liked and respected the guy, but now, well, now I see Alden for who he really is. Always knew there was something fishy. Seriously, give us a break. It's like when people find out that I speak Russian, I suddenly get outrageous exclamations of, Now that you mention it, I can hear your accent! Stop it. I can hear your accent. It is very strong. No, but seriously. Like, I I just don't understand that logic. Like Elizabeth Carey, he managed to escape before the trials ever began. Unfortunately, he was caught and had to come back to Boston to face trial, but that wasn't until everything was basically over and done with. Charges dropped, he was a free man again, a lucky man, much luckier than most of the accused. Some of the others accused before the trials began were Job Tukey from Beverly, Elizabeth Howe from Topsfield, Martha Carrier from Andover, and a slave named Candy from Salem Town. The fever was spreading. All right, so before we get into the actual trials, we're going to backtrack for just a second to explain a little bit about how the trials were conducted and who was in charge. Back on May 14th, the brand new Massachusetts governor, William Phipps, arrived back in Boston from England with a new charter. Basically, all the old laws were out and new ones needed to be made, ones that made England happier. Even though the general court could get together to start to make things happen in regards to the witch trials, they weren't set to meet until the second week of June. Considering everything that was happening in Salem and the surrounding towns, Phipps didn't want to wait. So on May 27th, he established a court of Oyer and Terminer, which translates to to hear and determine. When he created this court and when he was writing to the King's Council in England, he kind of sort of totally left out witchcraft altogether. It was more along the lines of, there are a lot of people in jail and they need to be tried for crimes, or something. Yeah, crimes. Regarding the people who had a seat in this court, some of the names should sound familiar. Okay, the head honcho was Deputy Governor William Stoughton. The other guys were Bartholomew Gedney, John Richards, Nathaniel Saltonstall, Waite Winthrop, Samuel Sewell, John Hathorne, Jonathan Corwin, and Peter Sargent. These guys, while the creme de la creme of Massachusetts, knew squat diddly all about legal things, and by that we mean none of them had any legal schooling whatsoever. Not exactly the people you want making decisions about whether you live or die. All right, so time for a proper roll call. William Stoughton was a minister who eventually became a merchant. He went to Harvard and graduated in 1650 and then went to Oxford where he earned a master's in divinity. He was a super priest. Super preachy. Sorry, I've been really holding that in, guys. I had to get that one out. (laughs) All right. So it was all very fancy. Until now, we never knew you could get a graduate degree in divinity, honestly. We read that and we were like, oh, that's a thing? Okay, that's a thing. We'll take it. When Charles II donned the crown, 
Stoughton came back to Massachusetts and sided with whoever had the power. He didn't have an issue with jumping from one side of the river to the other when things looked bad politically, like when Governor Edmund Andros lost support. That's survival of the fittest in one of its purest forms. He didn't have a fancy family with fancy connections to get him through. Next, we have Stephen Sewell, who also went to Harvard. Deeply religious, he decided not to join in the church when he met a woman. Of course, it's always a woman. How romantic. Her father was a super wealthy man, like Daddy Warbucks wealthy. So Sewell married her and instead worked in his father-in-law's silversmithing business. He also involved himself in the community. He was elected to the General Court's House of Assistance in 1684 and eventually joined the Boston Militia where he was a captain. Peter Sargent moved from London to Boston in 1667 for the purpose of family business. Gotta expand one's empire, right? He married Elizabeth Corwin. Related to John Corwin? Absolutely. She was his sister, in fact. The Corwins were a wealthy and well-to-do family from Salem. Unfortunately, she passed away. So Sargent married again, this time to a woman named Elizabeth Shrimpton. Once again, this wife had connections. Her father was apparently one of the richest dudes in Boston. Sargent dabbled in politics before the trials, but nothing too big. John Richard seems to have been a crafty little bastard. He had connections to the Mather family. We'll get to them in just one hot second. Through their church. Now, this connection saved his mother from being brought up on charges of witchcraft. Interesting, right? And then when the trials were actually going on, John got married. Not just to anyone, though. He married the sister of fellow judge Waite Winthrop, forming a connection to one of the most powerful families in the entirety of Massachusetts, which meant even more protection from witchcraft accusations. Speaking of Waite Winthrop, surprise, surprise, he also went to Harvard, but for medicine. In the end, he was a college dropout, or, you know, what passed for medicine at that time, anyway. (laughs) He left after just two years. Waite married Mary Brown in 1677, connecting his already powerful family with a rich family from Salem. In 1692, Winthrop became commander-in-chief of the Bay Colony's military forces. Bartholomew Gedney was many things, a doctor, a military officer with the Essex County Militia, and a businessman. With the new charter and a new court system getting set up, Gedney was named the first judge of probate for Essex County. Even without that appointment, though, his family had connections. His daughter married into the Corwin family, specifically the nephew of fellow judge Jonathan Corwin. A Salem boy through and through, speaking of Corwin, he was related to basically everyone No joke, like literally, five of the judges serving on the court of Oyer and Terminer were linked to him in one way or another. Marriage, mostly through his siblings. How nice, a family affair. Corwin was a man comfortable with responsibility. He was a part of the Council for Safety, then he was an assistant, and then was a counselor again in 1691 with the new charter. Nathaniel Saltonstall was a judge with a conscience. Kind of. He walked away from being a judge during the trials, basically washing his hands of the entire affair, after just a matter of weeks. Did he speak out against it? Nope, he just slinked away quietly. His appointment to the court was rather interesting since he didn't live in Salem or Boston. He was the only judge, actually, who didn't reside in either of those towns. Saltonstall lived in Haverhill. Aside from that, his resume kind of looked like that of the other judges. Militia service, the magistrate life, worked as an assistant. Same old, same old. The judges all sorted out. Phipps had one last move to make before the power was completely in the hands of the court of Oyer and Terminer. He had to decide on a prosecuting attorney, and he chose Thomas Newton. 
Phipps could at this point wash his hands, sit back with the whiskey, and watch how things unfolded. The court of Oyer and Terminer, on the other hand, could now get down to business. Their first move was to gather a grand jury of 18 men. These men had to be free men who could vote. Now, this was an improvement on the old rules. Before the new charter, only free men who were Puritan church members could vote. But the new charter removed the need to be a Puritan. Now they only needed to be landowning freemen. Yay, progress! The second task before the court of Oyer and Terminer was probably the hardest. Since the new charter got rid of all the old laws, there hadn't yet been a chance for new ones to be created in their place. So they needed to decide what kind of evidence and testimonies were valid and invalid. Two forms of evidence that would be admitted during the Salem witch trials were spectral evidence and the touch test. If those don't sound like concrete types of edi- evidence, you're right. So they were exactly what they sounded. During the touch test, the person being tormented touched the so-called witch. If that person's pain stopped, ipso facto Columbo Oreo, I totally borrowed that from Bones, the person was a witch. Spectral evidence went a little bit something like, their spirit came to me and hurt me and ouch, they're awful and evil. Look at this paper cut on my finger. Which A did the deed? And they went, oh yeah, yeah, spectral evidence. Yep, yeah, their spirit. Unbelievable. Earlier, we mentioned that Judge John Richards had a connection to the Mathers North Church. This is where that connection comes into play. Minister Cotton Mather was the son of Minister Increase Mather, who had gone to England to hash out the terms of the new charter. Cotton was a bit of a wild card. He almost didn't become a minister due to a stutter, almost became a doctor, actually, but then ended up walking down the same path as his papa. Now, Richards wasn't sure how to deal with the evidence permitted by the court, so he wrote to Cotton asking for his advice. Cotton told him not to rely on spectral evidence alone. Take things with a grain of salt sort of thing. Make sure there was also evidence of people using their eyes to see, you know, actual people in physical form doing something witchy. And that was actually pretty decent logical advice. We'll give that to him. As logical as you can get when a shit ton of people were arrested on and on trial for witchcraft, their lives hanging in the balance. Thomas Newton had Sarah Good, Rebecca Nurse, John Willard, John Proctor, Elizabeth Proctor, Susanna Martin, Bridget Bishop, Alice Parker, and Tichaba brought to Salem from Boston Jail on May 31st. On June 2nd, the trials finally began. The actual trials this time. The first to stand trial wouldn't be Sarah Good or any of the earlier accused. No, the first to stand would be Bridget Bishop. Her case was essentially the easiest to try because... That wasn't her first time as an accused witch. She escaped the noose once, but Newton would try and make sure that she wouldn't get free a second time. And if I sound angry, I'm fucking pissed. FYI. Yeah, we've been, like, trying to contain ourselves during this entire episode. And, like, if you didn't notice, it's difficult not to notice. It's, it's a little hard for us to not be biased. All right, so Bridget Bishop had a rather iffy past. She'd been married twice and widowed twice. Apparently, domestic violence was as common in her home as air during her second marriage. She was grumpy and unhappy and didn't pretend that life was just a bed of roses. So obviously, she was a witch. When it came time for people to share their evidence against her, it looked like Bridget was quite the busy little witchy bee. She tried to force the girls to sign the devil's book, even going so far as telling one of the girls she'd drown her if she didn't sign. When the girls tried to speak out, Bridget's spirit made quick work of tormenting the girls some more. Bishop should have just kept her eyes on a wall or a window or a floorboard, since whenever she looked at any of the girls who accused her, they fell down stupid. Yet, magically, when Bridget touched them, they were right as rain again. 
People came out of the woodwork all the way back to 20 or so years ago to stand and testify against Bridget. They said she murdered people and summoned creatures and was the witchiest witch they ever did see. It's all so very interesting when you take a look at the way people behaved. One person stepped forward, then another, and the next thing you know, the entire village and their long-dead ancestors were coming forward with stories of foul deeds. Couldn't walk more than a few steps before tripping over a witch. Then there were John and William Bly, a father and son duo who had done some work on Bishop's house back in 1685. According to them, they found puppets, a.k.a. voodoo dolls, stuffed into the cellar wall, because that's where I keep my voodoo dolls. But okay. Did they have these puppets? Nope. Were they required to show them in court? Absolutely not. The word of these two men, from something they saw years ago, was good enough. Cue the funeral dirge. Then, Dr. John Barton delivered the final nail in the coffin. He had looked over Bridget's body so he could find a devil's mark, also known as a witch's teat. Behold! He found one. He testified that it was between her genitals and anus. But when they went to go look again for confirmation, it was gone. No devil's mark there. That must have looked even worse. Probably evidence of black magic in their minds, and what a thing to have to suffer through. I mean, honestly, a bunch of creeps staring at every inch of her naked body so they could prove to themselves that they condemned a witch and not an innocent person. Congratulations, it was still an innocent person. Yeah, so I doubt the jury even had to deliberate when, you know, this trial was over. But they probably did it for appearance's sake, so they could say, oh yeah, we discussed the case and all came to the same conclusion. Bridget Bishop was found guilty. Her sentence, death by hanging. One week later, on June 10th, poor Bridget Bishop was taken to a place that would eventually be called Gallows Hill, and her sentence was carried out. We can only hope that it was a quick death, but in all likelihood, it probably wasn't. The drop probably didn't kill her because it was a short drop instead of a long one. There wasn't enough force to break her neck, which meant that she would have been strangled by the rope until she died. A gruesome, horrific, agonizing and drawn out way to go. Unfortunately, her execution was only the first. Cranky or not, she didn't deserve the end she got. We hope she rests in peace. And that is the end of part one of the Salem Trials. Guys, thanks so much for hanging out with us on this episode of the Dear World Love History podcast. We will be back with part two of the Salem Witch Trials miniseries on Saturday, March 7th. We're going to pick back up with the trials and take it all the way through to the end. And if you have a second, rate and review us wherever you listen. We can't express how much we appreciate hearing from you guys. And that's a wrap. Historians out. The History of the Atlantic World is a long-form history show that tells a tragic tale of conquistadors, war, slavery, and genocide. But within the tragedy of life lay the inspirational stories of revolutionaries, escaped slaves, and pirates. I'm Jesse Wiest, your allegedly hilarious host, and this story begins in 1492 with the tale of someone so infamous you already know his name. Hi, I'm Kelsey. And I'm Alexa. And have you always been curious if Winona Ryder is actually crazy? Are you dying to learn how to stay out of a cult? Then you should definitely check out the Psyched Podcast. The podcast where two psychotherapists analyze real and fictional figures from pop culture and tell you all about the obscure psychological phenomenon that your Psych 101 class didn't have time to tell you about. So grab your cocktail and head over to thepsychedpodcast.com and check us out. And don't forget to go to therapy and get your shit together. Bye. Bye.